we're going to get a big storm here tonight, aren't we? Probably get a few flakes, shut down the schools, businesses for four weeks, whatever. But amen, we'll go on. That's the way it goes. Hey, uh, thank, uh, thank so many of you on behalf of those working in Haiti for the gifts that a number of you have made. Uh, as some of you know, I'm on the board of World Relief, which, World Relief, which is a, an organization that deals with the desperately poor around the world in the name of Christ. And, uh, you know, I, so I get these regular reports. And it, it, last report I got there, there have been 112 deaths and maybe more in the past few days that have been discovered for sure and 194,000 people injured. Uh, there are leaving uh, Port-au-Prince alone 230,000 people who now live in tents. There are half a million children with no classroom to go to. All the schools are closed. We need about three or 4,000 school buildings built and, of course, uh, a lot of other buildings built. And uh, so it's just one of those uh, disasters which is very, very hard to imagine. And yet people have been very uh, generous and uh, I know that it's much appreciated. Uh, if, he, if any of you wanted to, to get involved in any way financially, if you want our help, we'd be glad to. You can, if you want to write a check to Second Presbyterian Church and put in the a description, Haiti Relief, uh, what we do with our gifts is just combine them all and send them to World Relief. Or you can just write your check out directly to World Relief and you can send it to them. And uh, uh, if you want me to mail it for you, I'd be glad to. But can I ask back there, uh, can, can we receive uh, gifts if anybody wants to do that? Can you all do that in the back, back there? Thank you. Uh, so if you want to uh, do that, just drop a check off, and we'll be glad to get it there for you. Second, I think uh, the folks have given about $50,000 these past couple of weeks, which is great, and there are going to be multiple millions needed. The thing I love about World Relief, it's not the only one uh, who is uh, doing it this way, but it's one of the few. Uh, that actually do our relief through the local churches. So, uh, as you know, in this huge disaster, any relief organization can only pick, pick their few spots where they're going to work. And uh, we've picked ours. We have about three spots. But in every case, we're doing it through local church people. So what happens is we're mobilizing local Christians who are in the churches to do their own relief work. And we're resourcing them. It also guarantees that in the proper way, at the appropriate moments, Jesus Christ will be proclaimed as well as being demonstrated. And so you get the integration of word and, word and deed through the local people who know when the right time and what the right way to, to do that is. So it's very helpful. Just last Sunday, we, just our organization alone was, uh, was able to give uh, 15,000 hot meals. In fact, it's 15,284 hot meals uh, to people there. And it's just... Uh, just a wonderful thing to see the American Christians, along with Christians around the world, responding. So if any of you want to participate, just let us know. We'll be glad to, to help. Um, by the way, I noticed, too, I'm sure you saw this, that you can actually get a tax deduction in 2009 for gifts given up through a certain date in 2010. I think it's still open So uh, for Haiti Relief. So if you'd like to do that, if you're looking for another tax deduction for last year, there's a... There's some help. A lot of people are not looking for tax deductions. <laughs> they had enough of those in the past couple of years. Let me mention one other thing. Uh, the cat got let out of the bag last weekend about a translation shift that Second Presbyterian is contemplating, and I'm contemplating for amen, too. 
this study Bible has just been wonderful. I, I've enjoyed using it over these past several years that we've used it in Amen. These are out of print now. And so um, we're contemplating a shift to the English Standard Version. This is the NIV. We're thinking about the ESV. And uh, some of you are already using the ESV. It's a, a translation that came out several years ago and has become very popular. And the reason is it's a little bit more accurate word-to-word. Sentence-to-sentence, NIV is, is good. Uh, word-to-word, the ESV is a little better. And also there is a, a, an excellent study Bible that is in the ESV translation. It's, it's, it takes a wheelbarrow to bring it to amen. It's, it's huge. But it's got so many great things in it. I think uh, next fall you'll enjoy using that. So next fall uh, we'll be using the ESV study Bible as our main text. So when I refer to page numbers and so on, it'll be there. And that'll just be our textbook next fall. So you don't have to do anything about it until next fall. I just wanted you to know in case you're, you happen to be buying a study Bible, another study Bible, you might think about that one uh, for amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. And here we pick up the story. And boy, do we ever pick it up. I just want to say to you, this text we're going to look at is a phenomenal text. And it leads us to a privilege of a believer that I believe, uh, as J.I. Packer says, is the highest privilege of the Christian. Now you say, how could it get any better than it's already been? Because we've seen that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And all the charges that could be laid against us as sinners are completely wiped away. We're innocent. We're not only declared innocent, we actually are innocent before the Lord. I know it's hard to imagine. With all the things that we've thought and said and done, no condemnation. Now I dread, says Charles Wesley. Uh, Jesus in Him alone. So in Christ, we have no condemnation. We have nothing to fear before God's throne of justice. That is an enormous privilege. You, you may think, what can get any better? Well, in Packer's book, Knowing God, I suggest you, that's a classic. It's one of those that would uh, be healthy to reread about every five years. Knowing God, written about 30, 35 years ago. And then there is a chapter called Sons of God, and I just recommend it to you. But uh, basically, here's what Packer says, that there is something greater than justification, and it is adoption. That in justification, Packer says, you've been made clear with God as judge. But in adoption, you have taken him as your father. And that is greater. Packer says, if I were to condense the Christian religion into three words, here's what I would say. Propitiation through, I'm sorry, adoption through propitiation. Now, propitiation just means to satisfy, or in this case particularly, to satisfy the wrath of God. So justification satisfies fully the wrath of God. That's His wrath, or God Himself, is propitiated. His wrath is propitiated. It's satisfied. That's justification. So Packer says what the Christian faith is, it's adoption, it's becoming a son of God through this forensic, this legal justification, propitiation, the atonement. And I think that's a wonderful way to describe what has happened to us as Christians. So the the summit, the summum bonum, the highest good for the believer is have God as our Father. 
Now, here's what's really interesting when you look into the New Testament. If you want to know, what does the New Testament really tell us about God and about our relationship with Him? Packer says, and I think he's quite right, that fundamentally the the New Testament is presenting to us God as our Father. That's the basic idea. The very essence of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that you see God as your daddy. That's an amazing thing. By contrast, in the Old Testament, you have hints of this. For example, in the Exodus, when God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. At one point he says, tell him to let my son go. So there's a sense in which Israel was always seen as God's son. But what was emphasized in the Old Testament? Well, what was emphasized was the holiness of God. When the cherubim or the seraphim are singing in Isaiah chapter 6, what do they sing? The Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. In the book of Exodus, what do you see? You see the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? The tabernacle is all about God taking up residence among His people. And if He takes up residence among His people, you must be very careful not to approach Him in the wrong way or it will destroy you because He is holy. He is, he is totally other. And He is pure and perfect. That's the kind of emphasis you get in the Old Testament. What's the emphasis in the New Testament? It is an emphasis on intimacy. Example. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Let your light so shine that may, men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So everything you're doing is to please God. He says at the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So He's telling us, imitate your Father. So everything you do is to please and glorify your Father. Everything you do is to imitate your Father. Be like Him. Walk in His steps. And then what do you get in chapter 6? You get the Lord's Prayer. Here's how you should pray. Our Father. So He says, talk to Him. So you're pleasing Him. You're imitating Him. You're in regular conversation with Him as you would a good father. So Jesus, from the very beginning in His first sermon, teaches us that. If you want to look at God in the Old Testament, you would say... How is he defined there? Well, you have the name Yahweh. I am that I am. But classically in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he is. And often when the Israelites in Egypt are being taught who God is, he's the God of our fathers. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who gave all the promises to the patriarchs. That's God. In the New Testament, he just simply summarized this way. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So being in Christ then, we also become sons. And he is the God and Father of his church as well. So this is at the very heart of the gospel. And I have to say, without having been taught this explicitly, I just simply experienced it shortly after my own conversion. As I look back 33 years ago, uh, about this time of year, a little later, when I became a Christian, and I think about the experience of that, I mean, it was absolutely phenomenal. But one thing I've always remembered very vividly 
about becoming a Christian in my mid-twenties was the way in which I understood fatherhood. Because up until that moment, we all had imperfect fathers, and sometimes in a room this size, we had disastrous experiences as fathers or as sons of fathers. And some of us have not been very good fathers. But generally speaking, we have a respect for our father. And I can remember as a teen and as a 20-something, back in the back of my mind, if I really thought about it, most of what I was doing was a reflection of my father's opinions. That most of what I was doing was done in order to please or impress him. He was sort of the gold standard, if you will, in my mind. And, you know, there's a sense in which that's true with everybody. And it's kind of a scary thing for those of you who are fathers, that your children actually get their first ideas even of God from who you are. That can be very scary. And we have to teach our children, children, you have a lot to learn about God. And you must begin by unlearning what you thought you knew about God from being my child. Uh, But it's true. And I distinctly recall the experience of having my mind purged and my imagination expanded when I realized no longer was I to live with this, even in the background, of doing things to please or satisfy or impress my Heavenly Father because I had a new father. I distinctly remember that experience. And then that made my dad fundamentally my brother who preceded me in time, who took the role of my earthly father, whom I respect and love dearly, and whom I seek to please simply as a servant in love, but not as a way to build my own self-esteem. That was a fundamental shift that took place in my own thinking self-consciously as a Christian in his 20s. And, you know, you could even look at my career path. Not that that always works out that way, but to me it was really obvious. I mean, I was I, I, I majored in electrical engineering. My dad was a businessman in a, in a manufacturing concern. He was a CEO of a manufacturing concern. And so I'm going to do something practical with nothing wrong with that. It's just not the way I found out later I was built. But so I'm moving along that line. Maybe I could be useful in the manufacturing community. Well, I found out I wasn't quite a manufacturer. I was more of a salesperson. So I get into sales and marketing in the corporate world with an electrical engineering background with an interest in business. And then I get converted. And I continue in sales and marketing as a business person and so on. But now I'm thinking differently about how to deploy myself in God's kingdom. And it could very well be by coincidence that a person like that would stay right there in the business world continuing to be involved in sales and marketing because that is the best way to please his Father in heaven. And many of you have made that choice. And as far as I'm concerned, you undoubtedly made it rightly. But in my case, it actually involved a career shift. Once I understood who my real father was, taking orders from him, seeing myself in light of who he is and what he wants out of my life. And when I looked at it that way, I realized, you know what? I didn't take into account that I may have gotten some of my mother's genes. (laughs) Maybe I'm a little different from my father, my earthly father. And it liberated me to see myself as I really am because who I am really 
is who I am before God. Nothing more, nothing less. That's who I am. And until you get that, until you really embrace God as your Father, you're not free to be who you are because who you are is who you are before His face, nothing more, nothing less. So what we're studying today is enormously significant in terms of your enjoyment of the Christian life, in terms of your knowledge of who God really is, your knowledge of who you are, your direction in life, and your liberation as a son of God. It's all packed in right here. Well, with that, we better take a look at it, hadn't we? Let's look at chapter 3, verse 26, reading through 4, 7. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed... Uh, have. I'm sorry, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Amen. Well, there are really two sections that we want to look at. Uh, First of all, the verses in chapter 3, that would be 3, 26 through 29. We want to look at the whole idea of sonship. And then when we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at the idea of heirship. Let's look first of all in verses 26 through 29. God has made us sons. You are all sons. What I was just describing is not just for a few of us. It's for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Everyone who has received Jesus Christ has received the authority to become a son of God. That's what Jesus, or that's what John uh, the evangelist said, the apostle in John chapter 1, verse 12, that the Jewish people in large part had rejected him. His own did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right, the power, the authority to become the children, the sons of God. You have that right. Nobody can take it away from you. You can't even take it away from you, even though you may do things and say things Uh, to yourself from time to time, which would tend to take it away from you. And this is an enormous privilege. John then says later on in 1 John chapter 3, now we, we are children of God. That is what we are. And what we are, we, what we have been, I'm sorry, what we will become, we do not know, but we know this, that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're his children. He loves us. Take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back of your Bibles Uh, This would be uh, page 2180, 2180. 
and look at the chapter 12 in the Confession of Faith on Adoption. It's the shortest chapter, I think, unfortunately, in the Confession. It only has one paragraph. And I think what it does, it reveals the lack of emphasis in Puritan Christianity on this doctrine, frankly. Uh, I love the Puritans. I think they're very, very helpful. But I would say they tended to direct themselves more to the forensic idea of justification rather than the relational idea of adoption. But here you have what was said uh, over 400 years ago. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as by a father. Yet, never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. It is a brief statement, but a wonderful statement. And then look on the back, I believe it's the back of your second page, where we simply put the words of that great hymn we just sang. That hymn was very intentional. Children of the Heavenly Father, safely in His bosom gather, nestling bird, nor star in heaven, such a refuge ever was given. You have a better refuge than any nestling bird or any star in the heavenly places. And look at all the things that He does for us. For stanza three, neither life nor death shall ever from, his, from the Lord his children sever. Unto them his, uh, his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. And look in the next one, he's a protector. He defeats the foe man, the boogeyman, the one who's after us. And as particularly Satan himself, he destroys Satan. Because Satan desires to destroy you. And... Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children never forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. No matter what we go through, here's his purpose. To preserve his children pure and holy. That's his intent with everything that he does with you. And you want to know if that could ever change? Look at the last stanza. I love, this is one of my favorite stanzas in all of hymnody. Uh, by the way, if you happen to make it a habit to memorize some hymns, this one would be a good one. Look at that last stanza. More secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. Not yon star on high abiding, nor the bird in home nest hiding. Nobody could be more secure than you are as a son of God. Now that's what it means to be made a son. And what Paul is saying now, back to our text, is that you are all sons. Now notice a couple of things about this. First of all, it comes through faith in Christ. Now, some may think that this happens automatically because you're a creature. There is a sense in which God loves everything that He has made, and there's a sense in which God is the Father of all creation because He made it. There's a sense in which that's true. But when you look at the Scriptures, 
The fatherhood of God is dominantly, I'm talking about 99% of the time, what we're talking about is the fatherhood of God that has to do with His saving His children. He becomes your father because He saves you from the damnation that we deserve. That is the fatherhood of God. It's not for everybody. It's for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. All the false religions don't have God as their father. In fact, some of them are quite clear about saying He couldn't possibly be your father. In Islam, you would never call God your father. If you called God your father, it would be what's known as shirk in Arabic. It's, it's blasphemy to think that you could be that intimate with the living God. You would not call Him your father. In Christ, we must call Him our father because that is how intimate a relationship we have with Him. So it's through faith. And you'll notice the word faith used five times in verses 23 through 26. Do you think it's being emphasized here that it's through trusting in Jesus Christ of whom God is the Father of the one Son that is His by nature? We are sons by adoption. It is in Christ through faith in Him, trusting Him alone, that we are received as brothers of Jesus. We come into the family as brothers of Jesus through faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us and who He is and in His Lordship. And then notice that it's through faith in Christ, it's also in union with Christ because He says, here's how faith works. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, you have put Christ on. You've taken Him on. You're in Christ. You're the hand in the glove. That's how close you are to Christ. You're living in him. That's the reason you're the, a son of God. It's not because of who you are or what you've done or because you're particularly attractive or impressive. It's simply because you've gone into Christ who is infinitely impressive. When God looked at his son at the beginning of his ministry at the baptism at the river Jordan, he said out loud by the Holy Spirit, this is my son with him I'm well pleased. And God would not be God if he were not well pleased with Jesus because Jesus was perfect. His whole life was here. He said, I came to do my Father's will. And He did it. Even at the cost of His own life. The Father was very well pleased with Him. Do you realize what happens when you receive Jesus Christ? You go into that glove. You go into that life. And the Father is well pleased with you. You may not be pleased with yourself, but He's well pleased with you. He sees you in Christ. And that is who you are. You are in Christ. In union with Him. That's what it's all about. And you'll find the word Christ in verses 26 through 29 five times. You think Paul's making a point. This is how adoption takes place. This is how your sonship takes place. It's in union with Him. You get this big time, of course, in Colossians uh, chapter, chapter 2. In fact, you might turn over a few pages there. Let's look at the text where Paul describes this life in Christ. This is uh, page uh, 1930. Colossians 2, Paul says, verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Now, in the NIV, once again, the the ESV, I happened to look at it this morning, gets it right or gets it more accurately. The word for live in Greek is actually the word for walk. And the ESV actually says it. Continue to walk in Him. How do you walk in somebody? (laughs) The only way 
I mean, this is such a mystery. Paul says this is a mystery. Here's the mystery, Paul says. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the other way of putting it. The mystery is you in Christ. The mystery is walking in another, another being. How do you walk in another being? Well, this is the, what Paul says in, that now back to Galatians chapter 3. That you've been baptized into him. That doesn't necessarily mean water baptism. Uh, it means you've been brought into union with him. The word baptism means to be brought into union with. So you've been baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourself with him. There's another analogy. You've taken him on like clothing. So you're walking in him. Everywhere you go, it's in Christ. That's how we become sons of God. Now notice some implications of this. If you'll look in verse 28 and 29, you'll see two key implications. First of all, this makes us one family. We are one family. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Gentlemen, this is one of the ways in which we clearly demonstrate that we understand that we're sons of God through Jesus Christ. And not through family tradition, not through religious tradition, not through the side of the railroad tracks that we grew up on. We are sons of God. We are privileged for one reason. We are in Christ. And here is the most graphic way that it is demonstrated that we are one as a family in the way that we treat each other, the way we live life together, the way we think, the way we speak. It's recognizing that we're all in the same family as brothers and sisters because our Father is a common Father. We have access to the Father, says the Apostle Paul, by one Spirit. So, Rather than thinking, well, I've got the DNA of a Northern European, specifically a Scots uh, DNA, through the American experience uh, in the American South in the 20th century. Instead of thinking myself of that way, I think I have been born from heaven by the Holy Spirit. I've been reborn. I have a new father. And my DNA now comes from another place. And I share this in common with other sons and daughters and we make up one family and we're all aliens from another place waiting to go home where our family is going to gather for its big reunion. Meanwhile, we live in a broken world and I live in a place where I'm not fully understood because it's not my native land. My native land is the New Jerusalem and it's going to come back one day. I'm going to go back to my native land. And there are other people here in this world as aliens as well and they're my family. And we're scattered away from home. That's the way you think. And it begins to get demonstrated in a number of ways in which we live life. And notice the ways in which it gets demonstrated. It's regardless of race. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek. And until that gets demonstrated really clearly, people are not going to be able to see the gospel. They can hear the gospel. They just can't see it. In fact, what they see is a contradiction of what they're hearing. Which should they believe? What they see or what they hear? Most people choose what they see. There's the gospel. The gospel is that you can be saved, and once you're saved, go back in your tribal groups and live as a tribe, and 
we say this is going to happen one day, but we don't experience anything now that changes the way that we live. We stay in our tribes, our clans, our earthly fathers and our earthly mothers and our earthly brothers and our earthly sisters. That's what's really important to us because that is really what counts. That's what I see, so that must be what the gospel is. It kind of puts icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. So it's regardless of race. It's regardless of rank. Oh, so I hear this is an egalitarian society, that people, it, there's a level ground there, right, for the cross, where everybody is received like family, regardless of how much money they have, how big a car they drive, how many vacations they've taken, how big an education they have. Oh, this is an egalitarian group. They really love each other. They're democratic. Just, you know, you're just received as family, regardless of your success in the world. That's what I hear you say. But then I look, and all your leaders... Look like you took it right out of the directory of the top companies, corporations in your in your town. I, when I was in in uh, business, I was with Bethlehem Steel Corporation, and so part of my time was spent in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I wasn't a Christian, but I did listen. I did attend church twice in two years. So don't call me a non-Christian. I went to church twice, and when I went, I I happened to look on the back of their bulletin, and I noticed who their elders were. And for heaven's sakes, I think I knew all of them because they were all, they were all executives in Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I thought, that is really interesting. You mean the people who are successful in my corporation are the godliest people this church has? That's really interesting. Here's what was interesting is that the world was defining church leadership for these people. They hadn't experienced the gospel. It was an amazing thing. Those who had elevated themselves in the world were the ones who were made leaders in the church. They, I think they maybe forgot a few verses in the Bible. It's regardless of rank. Thirdly, it's regardless of gender. There's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's, what he's saying is this, that we, we who in, even today, in the world where we've, those of us who have grown up in the second half of the, of the 20th century, We've been listening to feministic language. We've been watching our world turn around, even though women are still reported to, to make only 77% of what men make in the same jobs. It's a whole lot better than it used to be. And we're seeing that half of the students in law school are now women, and half of the students in med school are women. As one of my lawyer friends told me about 20 years ago, he said, Wilson, keep your eyes open. Before long, women are going to be running the world. <laughs> it's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, these people are smart. You know what? And they're starting, to, they're starting to come into places of leadership. But even with all that, there's still a need for the men who still have all kinds of power, political power, economic power, even physical power. It's important for the men to empower women when they hear the gospel. Now let's back up through these things for just a moment and recognize something very important. The Apostle Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. What, but what he's, he's not saying that that means that we don't notice that someone's a Jew or a Greek. We do notice in the church. Let me give you an example. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, there was, there was tremendous debate about where the ministry of compassion was going to be directed. 
Who was going to get the gifts? The Hebraic women or the Greek-speaking women? And there was dispute about how the gifts of the church were being distributed among these two ethnic groups. So the church was being all tied up in this turmoil. You ever been in a church like that? You get that's, the, that's one of the tragedies of church squabbles. It takes all of your attention away from the outside world. You're no longer evangelizing. You're just trying to get along. And also it takes your t- attention away from teaching and prayer. It takes your attention away from the Bible and from prayer because now you just got to solve problems. People are upset with each other. Have you ever been in a church like that? I have. And it's a tragedy. The church ends up just spinning out. Gets into spin cycle. And all just thinking about itself. And the apostles noticed this right away. And they said, we cannot do this. And that's where deacons came from. They said, let's appoint some deacons uh, so that we can devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and to the Word, which is what elders are supposed to be doing. Pastors are supposed to be doing. Devoting themselves to the ministry of prayer and the Word. So everybody else, if you're not an elder, you're not a pastor, look, your job is to help those people do what they're supposed to do devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and to the Word. And if they get tied up in squabbles or get tied up in logistics, get tied up in budgets, tied up in management, they're tied up. And the church is to gather around these people and say, download to us everything you can give us, everything except leadership in the ministry of prayer and the Word. Give it to us. Some pastors, some elders don't let go because that's the stuff they want to do, because they don't want to pray, and they don't want to teach the Bible. They don't want to learn the Bible. They don't want to teach it. So they'll do whatever they can do to be a church leader. So they won't let you have it. But the apostles let the deacons have it, and the deacons took it and did a very good job. Now notice, this is my point, notice the deacons in Acts chapter 6 when you go back there. They all had Greek names. The minority... They, this is called affirmative action. The apostles said, we're not only going to have deacons who are qualified for this, but we're going to have deacons who are representing the minority, and therefore we're going to lift up the minority in our midst because we're dominantly a Jewish church, so we're going to have Greek deacons. Now, when's the last time you ever saw a church here do this? To empower the minority. No, it's always the majority that gets empowered. Why? We forgot a few verses in the Bible. So we, it's not that we don't notice. I mean, today we'd say, it's not that you're colorblind. Please don't be colorblind. We notice that some are black. We notice that some are brown. We notice that some are white. We notice that some are what we used to call yellow or red. We notice it. And we do something about it. It's called affirmative action. Now, whether you think the government should be involved in affirmative action or not, let me tell you something. The church should be involved in affirmative action because we notice it and we're going to correct and rectify historical patterns. And believe me, with the Jews and the Greeks, you talk about historical patterns for hundreds and hundreds of years and the church said, we're going to reverse it. And the only way you can reverse it is by taking affirmative action to reverse it. So that's the way the church dealt with the Jew-Gentile question, with the ethnicity question. They did it through affirmative action. They did it through saying, we're going to be a new society. We're going to be different from anything this world on the Mediterranean has ever seen before. And they were. And we must be. 
Notice secondly, when it comes to rank, it's not as though we don't notice people's rank. If the mayor walks into this place, we will show him proper respect. Respect that we, in a way a little different than we might show you because he's the mayor. He, he is worthy of honor. Paul says, show Caesar respect. Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So Caesar is to be respected and honored. We, we respect authority wherever it is. And so where there's proper rank, we submit to the rank that is ordained by God in civil society as well as in the church. So it's not as though we don't notice. It's just that we don't give preferential treatment to those who are wealthy who can do something for us. Our motives are not to get something for ourselves. Our motive is to honor God by bowing down, not by impressing them with sucking up to them, which is the evangelical substitute for respect. It's sucking up to somebody so that we get their favor. And all you have to do is look in James chapter 2 where James says clearly, you cannot show the wealthy preferential treatment in the church. It's a denial of the gospel. It's a breach of the law. It's violating the very law of God. So there must be a sort of egalitarianism within the church. You must come and have equal footing as brother. I mean, you know, I have brother, a brother and two sisters. And there's a variety of success in various areas of their lives. But to me, when we have a family reunion, it makes no difference. They're sibling to me and doesn't matter. And that's the way it's to be in the church. And then regardless of gender, he says, of course we notice when someone's male and someone's female. Sometimes we notice too much. But we notice. And I suggest that you keep noticing. And with whatever culture you're in, use the accepted practices of your culture, the best practices, to give respect to the female gender. In our culture, it's still okay in Memphis, Tennessee to open the door for them. It used to be when I lived in Boston, if you opened the door, you could get hit across the face if you didn't watch out, if you did it to the wrong person. But in Memphis, it's not only acceptable, but it's very kind. I still think it's kind of nice. I know in a business setting you wouldn't do this, but in a social setting to get up off your duff when a woman walks up to you to speak to you. It's a showing respect, a proper distance, but a proper respect. So it's not as though you're trying to be intimate. You're just simply being respectful for women around you. Women don't like to be interrupted in case you hadn't noticed. And you're, you should be particularly careful of interrupting women because there's a history there of men dominating the airwaves and scooting them aside. So you, show, you do notice that they're women. You respect them. But what the apostle is saying is that in every way possible, you advance them. Now, the scriptures have certain ways in which men and women have distinct roles. It's not dominant in every area of life, but there are two areas where certain things are pointed out. For example, in the home. I think Ephesians 5 makes it fairly clear that there is a form of headship to the husband. Husbands abuse that. And because of that, you've gotten all kinds of pushback all of our lives trying to overthrow what the Bible has instituted, in my opinion. And we deserve everything we get. I've abused that role for 37 years, and I'm grieved over it. But I know I have. I've abused my power. We all have in whatever roles we've had. 
But that role of headship in the home is so that you can now advance the cause of your wife and children. Do you realize why you have that role? It's so that you can use all your authority to lay down your life and die for them. You can use all that authority to protect them and defend them. You can use all that authority to encourage them and take your role as a figurehead, someone who's representing God, if you will, God the Father. And you have power to take that role spiritually and build them up and encourage them and tell them how wonderful they are. You have the power to ignore your needs and to bring front and center the needs of your wife. You've got that authority above anybody else in the family. And that's the way it's supposed to be used because, brothers, that's the way Jesus used His authority as husband of the church. Use your authority with your wife in the same way Jesus used His authority with the church. He died for her. He washed her and cleansed her and made her whole. That's it. So there's a peculiar role in the play that's being worked out here on earth until we get home. There's a play going on. You have a script. You're playing out the script of the loving Lord Jesus Christ who is cultivating His church and husbanding her, loving her, caring for her. A husband is a, one who takes care of a vineyard. You're, you're taking care of your vineyard. You're playing out the role. She has her script, and the script is to show the love of the church for her husband, the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she shows respect and gives esteem and honors. That's her role. She's just playing it out. Now that's in the Scriptures. And there's a role in the church. Paul says, I forbid a woman to teach her to have authority over men. So as some have thought, it's some sort of authoritative teaching because we see women teaching. I mean, Priscilla teaches. In fact, she teaches a man. But there's some sort of authoritative teaching. She taught, by the way, Apollos so that he might preach the gospel more accurately. Priscilla did that. So we've got to qualify it in some way. So it seems to be authoritative teaching. And at Second Presbyterian, that means that on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, we would not have a woman preaching, which we think would be the authoritative teaching in the church, in worship. So you nail down what you know those distinctive roles are, and you stick to them. I don't care how unpopular they are, because they glorify the Lord. At the same time, you look and you say, where there are not distinctive roles given then we're going to promote women to the best of our ability in every kind of service and leadership. We're going to lift them up. We're going to say to them, what would you like to do here? How can we help you perform your ministries? So on the one hand, you have some distinctive roles, as exclusive as they might be. They're small in number, but they're distinctive roles given to a husband and given to a, a, a male leader, ordained leader in the church. But on the other hand, you have the issue of justice. And the problem with injustice is that someone is exercising their power to the abuse of another group of people, whether it's in race relations or whether it's the rich with the poor. And so many of our politics, Democrat and Republican, have to do with distribution of resources, whether the wealthy are going to get wealthier or the poor are going to get more. That's a lot of the political battles that go on. And on the other hand, with male and female. So you look for every way to distribute power and to share ministry, and to share life together while guarding those few distinctive roles that are to work out the script that God has for His church for men. That's the way you do it, because we are one in Christ. And when it comes to how He values us as sons, those women are sons just as well as we are. They're daughters. And they share that same status. And we must be careful to honor and respect that and to promote them. 
That's the idea. We're one family. Secondly, we're Abraham's seed. And what we're shown here is that if you belong to Christ, then you are rooted in history. You're connected to history. You are Abraham's child. You are what God had in mind from the very beginning in Genesis 12 when He says, I will make of you a great nation. And those who bless you, I will bless. And if they curse you, I will curse them. Gentlemen, that's the group that you belong to. If anyone lays a hand on you, they're laying a hand on God. If anyone curses you, they're cursing God. He takes up your cause because you're rooted from the very beginning with His intention to build a nation through Abraham. Also, you're connected to the future. You're heirs according to the promise, which means, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their amen in Jesus Christ. What promises is Paul talking about in 2 Corinthians? He's talking about the promises to Abraham, the promises through the prophets, the promise of a new land, the promise of a great nation, the promise of milk and honey. It all belongs to you in Christ. You say, well, what about the Israel nation? What about them? Weren't the promises made to them? Gentlemen, here is the rough, bad news. He rejected Israel because they were faithless in Jesus Christ. You say, well, where'd that come from? From the pages of the Old Testament. Israel was being divorced and rejected over and over again, and God in His faithfulness always kept a remnant a remnant. And you find sometimes, like in Isaiah 6, that means one-tenth. So 90% of Israel is rejected, and we keep one-tenth. What happened at the coming of Christ? It was the ultimate judgment of Israel. Here is your Savior. Here is your Messiah. Here now God has fully revealed Himself. Believe on Him. Repent from your sins. And about 90% didn't. And what happens? They're, as Paul says in Romans 11, they're cut off. They're rejected. You can have synagogue worship all you want. Paul went to the synagogue himself. But if you do not enter the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the worship of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are cut off. Now, Paul says, God's not finished with Israel, uh, with Israel because he'll take these cut off branches and he'll stick them right back in. He'll graft them right back in. How? through faith in Jesus Christ. So when people stoned Paul, did he stop preaching to them? When the Jews kicked him out of the synagogue, did he stop going back? No, of course not. He knew that God wasn't through with him, and he's still not through with them. That's the reason we keep going back to our Jewish friends who are now cut off. They're not the children of the promise. They're cut off from those promises. Who are the children of the promise? You. Because only in Christ do you become a son of Abraham. That's what Paul is teaching. Now, we only have five minutes, but look at chapter 4 and you see that the second big idea is that because of our sonship, God has made us heirs. Heirs with Christ. Folks, you're, as uh, Paige Benton said this past weekend, your 401k may have come a 201k. It's okay. I mean... I'm telling you what, it really doesn't matter. I mean, so you won't maybe have the same resources in your retirement. And I'm sorry. I mean, I really am. I'd like for you to have all kinds of resources. But you know what? In the scope of eternity, it just doesn't matter because you are stinking rich. You are, you are the wealthiest people in the cosmos. And I'm just not worried about you. I'm sorry. I, I sympathize with you in this little brief 
moment of time called earthly life where you, you may have to suffer with some deprivation of resources. But, of course, when you travel to Port-au-Prince, as some, some of us have done, you can't feel too sorry for any of us because compared to the rest of the world, we're stinking rich even in worldly terms. But let me tell you, in cosmic terms, you are the wealthiest of them all because everything that belongs to Jesus Christ, which happens to be everything, belongs to you. And one of the biggest problems with men in the church today is, number one, they don't know they're sons of God. They act like slaves. They act like servants who don't have any relationship to the master. And secondly, they act like they're poor. Two big problems. We're victimized. That's our problem. We act like victims. Gentlemen, you are God's precious sons, and you are wealthy. And notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, he says, it's not like minors. Now, minors are in the will, but they haven't reached majority yet, so they're not ready to receive the resources. So when they're kids, they're tutored, you know. The nanny raises them or somebody raises them. The parents raise them or they have a disciplinarian, and they're treated as though they weren't heirs because they're young. And Paul says, that's what it was like to be in the Old Testament. And that's what it's like for, you to, for these Jewish people to tell you that you must receive Christ but also be a Jew and come under the traditions of the law. They want you to be like a minor. We're through with being minors. We're full-grown adults. That's what he's saying in verses 4 through 7. We are adults in fullness. We now have the down payment by the Holy Spirit of our full inheritance. We can taste the whole thing right now. We don't have the whole thing, but we can sure taste it because the Holy Spirit has been given to us as our first down payment on the big inheritance. You're already beginning to get it. That's what he's saying to them. You're not kids anymore. When Christ comes, when the time had fully come, you became full adults. So let's act like it and let's enjoy being a full adult instead of being under the tutelage of the traditions of the law. And he says, here's how it happened. Verses 4 and 5, God sent His Son to redeem us. Look, first of all, at His person. He's fully God, He's fully human, and He's perfectly obedient. That's who He is. And He had to be all those things to redeem us. We talked about redemption before. I'm going to pass on, believe it or not, with a big word like redemption. Look at His work. His work is, first of all, there's redemption. He redeemed those under the law. Redemption means just to buy back particularly to buy out of slavery. If I want to redeem somebody out of slavery, I pay the price of manumission to the master and I get the slave out and he's now free. What has happened is we were slaves under the law and God sent His Son to pay for the price with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and we were redeemed from the slavery of having to obey the law in order to remain our, to retain our sonship. We're now liberated. We're redeemed. We belong to Him, body and soul. And that we might receive the full rights of sons. What are the full rights? Glory. Paul speaks in eight, Romans 8.23 of the redemption of our bodies. Glory. So first of all, you have the work of the Son. And then look, God not only sent His Son. Number two, God sent His Spirit to adopt us. So He sent His Son to redeem us. He sent His Spirit to adopt us. These are the two mysteries of the Gospel. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. The Son purchases us with His own blood. The Spirit adopts us, first of all, by indwelling us. We're going to go two minutes over today. He indwells us. He goes into our hearts. This is intimate. Secondly, 
We're entitled. That is, we're called sons. We call Him Abba, which is an Aramaic word that's like Papa. We call God Papa. And He gives us a special name. You'll find some of this in Revelation. Chapters 3 and 21 is listed there. Here's an example. My, my second son, as you know, is a Marine officer. He's in Afghanistan. And you don't mess with him. You don't mess with any of those guys. But when I talk to him, I'm sorry I can't help it. Benny boy, how you doing? Nobody calls him Benny boy. I mean, unless you want to get shot. <laughs> you don't call a Marine officer Benny boy. I do. He's my boy. And then when I, after I pray for him on the phone, I say, sweetie, we love you. Nobody calls him sweetie. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> you don't dare call my son sweetie, you know, with his, with his equipment strapped on, except for me. He's my sweetie. And he always will be. I've named him Benny Boy and Sweetie. And let me tell you something. You don't know what it is yet, but the Father, out of love for you, he has his little diminutive names for you. I don't know what they are. But when we get to heaven, Revelation tells us He's going to write it out for you on a stone. He's been calling you this all the time. And if you have ears to hear, you'll already begin to hear a little bit of it. A special, sweetie name He's got for you because you're His kid. And lastly, He enriches us. And whoa, how I wish we had time to talk about it. But He has stored up for you as His child. You're in His will. And He's not going to die to give it to you. The death has already been made with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by His resurrection, He now rules over the entire universe. And when He gets you in your redeemed body and gets you home in the new Jerusalem, He's going to lay out for you the entire estate. And He's going to say, Sweetie, I've been storing this up for you for all the ages. And I've been looking forward to this moment when I could display it before you and tell you, Son, this is all yours. And I give it to you. That's what you're headed for. And that makes all the difference in the world. It is the highest privilege of knowing Jesus Christ is to be a son of the living God and to know Him by the name Father. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great privilege that we often overlook. Help us not to overlook it any longer but to meditate upon it and to think of the kindness and the sweetness and the intimacy as well as the glory of being your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.